Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Later, his son-in-law, William Cromer, the Sheriff of Kent, was pulled out of the Fleet Prison before being taken outside the city gates to Mile End, where he too was hacked to death. Say's body was roped to Cade's horse and paraded around the city. The treasurer's head was stuck on a spear and displayed at various places in the city, where it was made to kiss Cromer's similarly impaled head in a grotesque and morbid puppet show. A number of other men were simply slaughtered under Cade's temporary rule. Predictably, the longer the captain kept his men in the city— the more futile his attempts to keep order became. By the evening of July the 5th, the mayor and aldermen had managed to array a military force under Lord Scales and Matthew Goff, two veterans of the French wars, and were prepared to lead a counterattack against the occupying rebels. A battle began on London Bridge at around 10 p.m. and raged through the night, concluding long after sunrise the next morning. Hundreds of men crowded onto the tight causeway across the Thames, fighting hand-to-hand by torchlight. Cade, in an act of desperation, had broken open the Marshalsea prison in Southwark, flooding his ranks with freed prisoners. But he couldn't break past Scales and Goff's defensive lines. In a final act of reckless rage, the rebels set fire to the wooden drawbridge, choking the battle site with smoke and sending men at the heart of the fight tumbling from the bridge to drown in the cold water below. Finally, in the mayhem, the gates on the London side of the bridge were bolted shut. Hundreds of bloody and burned bodies were left outside, including that of Goff and the alderman John Sutton. The rebels had been driven back to Southwark. The following day, July the 7th, on the advice of the Queen, who had remarkably and bravely remained during the rebellion at her manor, Greenwich, the Kentishmen were offered a chance to take charters of pardon and disperse. Many welcomed the opportunity, but Cade refused, preferring to withdraw once again to Kent, taking with him goods and treasure that had been plundered, quite at variance with his own commands, and vowing to continue the fight. But his luck had run out. On July the 10th, Cade was officially denounced as a traitor, and a bounty of 1,000 marks was put on his head. After several days' flight, he was captured in a garden at Heathfield in Sussex by Alexander Iden, who had replaced the unlucky Cromer as Sheriff of Kent. Cade fought to the last and although he was taken alive, he died of his injuries on the road. Justice thereafter could only be symbolic. Cade's corpse was beheaded at Newgate on July the 16th, 
taken around the city as far as Southwark for public viewing, then returned to Newgate to be chopped into quarters. His head, rather appropriately, was put on a pole above London Bridge, lifeless eyes staring down over the scorched remains of an extraordinary urban battle site. Kay's revolt was over, but tension smouldered throughout the summer. The king, his household, and the nobles who had joined him at Kenilworth crept back toward London at the end of the month. On July the 28th, a service of thanksgiving was held at St. Paul's Cathedral, and a month later a high-ranking judicial commission of Oyer and Termina to hear and to judge, including Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, and the Bishop of Winchester, was sent into the country to investigate the abuses that had been decried in the rebel manifesto. Many towns and villages in the southeast of England remained dangerously volatile. Several other individuals tried to raise Kent, Essex, and Sussex into rebellion during the autumn. Gangs of robbers roamed the countryside, looting and killing, and London simmered constantly. Soldiers returning from Normandy swelled the urban population, and veterans committed several offences against the heraldic arms of Lord Say, including vandalising the stone that marked his burial place at the Greyfriars. In August, the tower was broken into, and the armoury there was robbed of many of its weapons. The autumn saw disturbances in reaction to the routine election of a new mayor, while bill posters railing against the government appeared all over the city, and at one stage, a disgruntled keeper of Newgate Prison started a riot by setting all the inmates free. At every level, 1450 had been a year of strife, violence, chaos, and terror, the product of a gradually building crisis in government that stemmed ultimately from the vacuity of the twenty-eight-year-old king. For years, Henry's semi-absent kingship had been managed by a succession of patches and muddles, first by a minority council that balanced the differing views of his uncles against the corporate will of the lords, then by the rule of Suffolk, whose command of government was constructed through his own connections in the council, the royal household, and the countryside. Neither of these had proven a satisfactory solution, and Suffolk's rule had collapsed into murderous chaos and rebellion, of which Suffolk himself had been the first victim. Yet, if it has succeeded in destroying a supposed governing clique, the protest had done precisely nothing to address the root of all the country's ills. Following Suffolk's death and Cade's rebellion, Henry's personal incompetence remained, as pressing a problem as ever. Another man would soon thrust himself actively into the centre of political life in an attempt to address it. In September, Richard, Duke of York, returned from Ireland to make his own bid to rescue England from its dizzying decline. Chapter 8 Then Bring in the Duke of York A small fleet of ships sailed toward Beaumaris, a port town on the southeastern tip of Anglesey, that jostled in the shadow of a vast, turreted stone fortress. 
The castle, with its deep outer moat, defensive walls soaring more than thirty feet in the air, and twenty-two stout and round towers slitted all over with arrow holes, have been the most expensive of Edward I's large ring of Welsh fortresses. It was so huge, and its design so ambitious, that parts of the building, begun more than a hundred and fifty years earlier, had never been fully completed. What did stand was an ominous symbol of English royal power on the fringes of the king's territories. Beaumaris was a formidable place to approach. It was early September, 1450, and the ships had been expected for some days. They carried Richard, Duke of York, the king's cousin and lieutenant in Ireland, and his men. York had left Dublin on August the 28th, and the news of his coming had shaken Henry VI and his advisers. Instructions had been issued for the town to be on its guard. The captain of Beaumaris, Thomas Norris, was waiting along with several other local officers of the crown. They'd been told very firmly to delay York, and they sent a message to the Duke at sea informing him, as he would later complain, that I shouldn't land there, nor have victual, that is, food, nor refreshing for me and my fellowship, for a man, horse, nor other thing that might turn to my worship or ease. York was told that the commands issued directly from William Say, usher of Henry VI's chamber, who was convinced that he came unbidden as a traitor. He was refused permission to disembark. His ships were forced to stay at sea in search of another friendlier landing spot. York's ships finally landed somewhere near the mouth of the river Clwyd, some twenty-five miles along the coast of northern Wales. By September the 7th, the Duke and his retinue had reached his own castle at Denby. From there they rode to Ludlow, and from Ludlow they crossed the Midlands. As York travelled, he amassed followers, armed men from his extensive lands throughout Wales and England. On September the 23rd, a writer in Stony Stratford, Northamptonshire, saw the Duke appear in stately magnificence riding in red velvet on a black horse and Irish hobby. He would lodge that night in a tavern outside the town gates called the Red Lion. He didn't stay long. On September the 27th, he arrived in London, entering the city with three to five thousand men under his banner, marching through the streets and then out of the gates and down the short road from London to Westminster, where he was received in a short meeting by his beleaguered cousin, the king. The panic that York's unscheduled return from Ireland struck into the heart of the royal administration was easy to understand. Jack Cade, whose rising had brought an entire summer of chaos to the realm, had called himself John Mortimer, deliberately implying that he was related to the duke. Cade's articles of grievance warned that unless there was reform— the commons of England would first destroy the king's friends and after himself, and then bring in the Duke of York to be king. And plenty of other, pettier rebels had also invoked York's name in opposition to the royal government. In 1449, when Henry VI had been travelling to Leicester for the session of Parliament, 
He had also ridden through the town of Stony Stratford. A local writer recorded that as the king's entourage passed through the streets, one John Harris, sometime a shipman dwelling in York, approached the king waving a flail, a wooden agricultural tool, sometimes used as an improvised weapon, consisting of a long handle with a shorter pole attached to the end by a chain. Egged on by others in the town, Harris had beaten the ground in front of Henry with the flail, crying that he meant to show that the Duke of York then in Ireland should in like manner fight with traitors at the Leicester Parliament, and so thrash them down as he had thrashed the clods of earth in that town. For this impudence, Harris was arrested, thrown in a dungeon at Northampton Castle, and later hanged, drawn, and quartered. But his point had been made. As the people of England rejected the regime around Henry, so they projected their dreams of national recovery onto the Duke across the Irish Sea. There's no reason to believe that York had courted this. He was unquestionably the greatest English lord, a man of royal blood and huge landed power, which gave him much the same status as once had been possessed by John, Duke of Bedford, and Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. He was relatively untainted by the political failures of the previous three years. His time as lieutenant of France had preceded the dramatic loss of Normandy that took place on the Duke of Somerset's watch, and his time as lieutenant of Ireland had taken him away from the centre of politics at precisely the moment when Suffolk's regime dissolved into blood and blame. But this isn't to say that York was a rebel in waiting. He would always claim that his return from Ireland was an act of obedience, a move designed to assure the king of his loyalty against diverse language said of me to your most excellent estate, which should sound to my dishonour and reproach. In other words, to come and demonstrate that whatever claims were being made of his ambition, he was a loyal subject. In two bills drawn up and sent to the king, probably in the first weeks of his return from Ireland, he wrote that he had come to England in order to assure the king of his loyalty, and to declare me your true man and subject as my duty is. Yet touring England and Wales in the company of thousands of armed retainers was a provocative way to demonstrate loyalty. Why then did he come? It's possible, but unlikely, that York left Ireland out of dynastic ambition. York's true blood had been noted by the Kentish rebels, but this was hardly a novel observation. The king was certainly childless, and the matter of his heir apparent hadn't been formally addressed, but by the same token none of the noble promotions of the Dukes of Somerset, Exeter, or Buckingham constituted a direct threat to York's lineage. In the case of Exeter, York's superior blood status was explicitly recognised in the first Duke of Exeter's Articles of Ennoblement. The first Duke died in 1447, but his heir, the young Henry Holland, was even more closely tied to York's family. He was married to York's daughter Anne, and had been in York's custody when he was a minor. As recently as 1448, 
York and the Duke of Somerset had been granted lands in joint trusteeship, a sign that there was no division yet perceived between those two men. Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham, showed no signs of anything other than diligent loyalty to the crown. In short, there was no dynastic crisis calling York home, despite the turbulence of the reign and the wild claims of Cade's men, the king wasn't ill and showed no signs of imminent death, merely prolonged ineptitude. In 1451, Thomas Young, MP for Bristol, and one of York's legal counsellors, would stand in Parliament and suggest that for the security of the realm the king should name his heir apparent. Unsurprisingly, Young nominated York, and was duly arrested for his impertinence. If anything, such claims actively damaged York's political standing. Whatever the rebels of Kent, the tavern-room gossips or upstart lawyers in the commons thought, York's desire to force his claim to the crown, either immediately or in the near future, was precisely nil. What he saw for himself, rather, was a role as a sort of saviour of both crown and country. York and his wife, Cecily, had initially sailed to take up residence in Ireland on June the 22nd, 1449. During the forty months that he had spent overseas, England had suffered the worst collapse of government, foreign policy, and public order in a lifetime, arguably since the early 13th century. Normandy had been lost, Parliament had revolted wholesale, the Duke of Suffolk had been murdered, a violent and continuing popular rebellion had engulfed the entire southeast of England. And while it was true that York had played his part in the makings of the crisis, he was a prominent member of the nobility that had allowed, or at least acquiesced to, the rule of Suffolk and the royal household over a non-functioning king. He had also, by his fortunate removal from France and posting to Ireland, avoided any serious blame. Quite the opposite, in fact. All the news that reached him in Ireland would have given him the impression that his destiny and duty was now to rescue England from the chaos into which it had sunk. His royal blood gave him the prerogative. The thousands of men whom he could put at his disposal gave him the means. York had served as a king's hand in France, and now in Ireland. The logical next step was to offer his services for the same role within England itself. What the Duke hadn't perhaps fully calculated, however, was the extent to which his desire to respond to calls for his return might be seen by some around the king not as a friendly offer, but as a grave threat. First, his ships were turned away from Beaumaris. Then, as York had ridden through North Wales, he had learned of rumours that a number of knights connected with the royal household intended to capture him, imprison him in Conwy Castle, and strike off the head of a number of his servants, including his chamberlain, the veteran soldier Sir William Oldhall. Finally, he had heard that certain unspecified judicial commissions had been issued to indict him for treason and thereby to undo me, mine issue, and corrupt my blood. He returned to England, hoping to claim his position as the king's reformer-in-chief, 
but found on his arrival that this cast him in the role of the government's most dangerous opponent. York's armed parade through London on September the 27th put the febrile city in an even greater state of excitement than usual. Following his short meeting with Henry at Westminster, the Duke lodged for a fortnight at the Bishop of Salisbury's house in London. From there, he began to stake his claim to the central position in government for which he had come out of Ireland. Since his arrival in England, York had been exchanging bills and letters with the King. His first bill, sent shortly after landing in Wales, complained that he had been treated as a traitor and a criminal at Beaumaris. This was dealt with matter-of-factly in the reply from Henry, which explained patiently that since for a long time the people hath given upon you much strange language, saying that you should be fetched home with many thousands to seize the crown, the coast had been instructed to guard against such a thing. In other words, Henry suggested his men had overreacted, and we declare, repute, and admit you as our true faithful subject, and as our well-beloved cousin. York remained affronted. At some point after their meeting in Westminster, he sent Henry a second bill, ignoring the king's calming words, and pointing out that law and order appeared to be collapsing in England, and that I, your humble subject and liege man Richard, Duke of York, offer to execute your commandments. He offered, in effect, to take over command of English government in its moment of crisis. This bill, unlike the first, seems to have been widely publicized among the people of London. It was somewhere between an open letter and a manifesto. Once again, he was politely rebuffed. Rather than handing over government to York, Henry said he intended to establish a sad and substantial council, in the which we have appointed you to be one. This was plainly not the answer that York was looking for. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.